ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You're listening to World Affairs. I'm Teresa Katsarillis. We all have to make lots of decisions every day. We weigh pros and cons, benefits and risks. But not all of us have millions of lives depending on our choices. The president was faced with a really difficult decision in that point. You are going to be damned if you do, damned if you don't. That's four-star general Stanley McChrystal. Among the many risky decisions he's made in his career was orchestrating the capture of Saddam Hussein in 2003. At the time, he was in charge of overseeing elite special operations for the U.S. military. In Afghanistan, he was commander of U.S. and international forces, a coalition of 51 countries at its peak. Napoleon was once asked which enemy of all the enemies he'd ever fight he'd most like to fight again. And he said, a coalition. And you can see why, because there are inherent challenges in getting a coalition to be effective. In meeting rooms filled with generals and diplomats, everyone at the table is making constant calculations about economics, geopolitics, firepower, and human lives. With so much on the line, how do these powerful people make their decisions? This week, in a co-production with Foreign Policy magazine, we hear from two decision-makers who reveal the strategies they've used in high-stakes situations. We'll get an insider's view of the Iran nuclear negotiations. But first, General McChrystal offers advice on how to evaluate and mitigate risk. His new book is Risk, A User's Guide. Earlier this month, he participated in a World Affairs livestream event with Jack Detch, Foreign Policy's Pentagon and National Security reporter. Mike in my face means we're recording for the radio. General McChrystal, it's great to have you. Welcome to World Affairs. Thanks for having me, Jack. They also took some questions from the audience. Here's an excerpt of that conversation. General, we were talking a little bit in the pre-show about how the situation in Afghanistan unraveled. And I wanted to start out with a very simple question. How did we get it so wrong? Just in our assessments, uh, there were reports out there that the intelligence community had assessed the Afghan government had six months or so to go. And President Biden himself seemed assured that Ghani wouldn't fall. So why do you think our projections were so off? And why didn't we take the risk more seriously? Jack, please call me Stan. So uh, I wasn't in the room for those assessments. So you start off with an assumption that we got it completely wrong. I'm not 100% sure what the intelligence community actually said, so I wouldn't hang that blame on them for getting it wrong. What I'd say is if we think about the situation in Afghanistan over the 20 years, it was really a case of confidence the entire time. It was the confidence of the Afghan people in their government, in their military, in their own capability 
to form a nation that was strong enough to withstand Taliban and other challenges. I think it suffered a number of hits to its confidence over the years. Really in the second decade of the American involvement, we'll call it, from 2010 on, or 2011, there were a number of times when the United States signaled that we are gonna leave as soon as we can. And so there was this drumbeat of, as soon as the getting's good, we will. And I think that began really to undercut Afghan confidence in the American commitment, but also in their own ability. And then it was matched by shortcomings in their government and other things, and the Taliban did a pretty good job of creating this air of inevitability that they would come back. Then fast forward to the Doha Accords, when President Trump's administration agreed that all American military forces would leave by 1 May 2021, it was a big deal for Americans to end the forever war. It was a bigger deal for Afghans because even though they'd had almost 20 years of assistance, there was a question of confidence. Were they ready? Were they able, capable enough to stand by themselves? And then, of course, with the uh, arrival of President Biden's administration, President Biden is on the horns of a dilemma. He's got to either continue on with President Trump's agreement or abrogate that agreement, which would be really counter to what President Biden had been saying as was his position a long time that we needed to get out of Afghanistan. So it reinforced for the Afghan people the fact that the Americans were leaving. And so I think the Afghan people went through a sort of a slow building situation that undercut their sense they could do it. And then the Taliban ran a masterful information warfare campaign out in the provinces and the district capitals and whatnot, convincing everybody that as soon as it started to go, it would collapse. And so then you get to the actual moment when they begin to withdraw American forces. And many people talk about the hinterlands out hundreds of miles from Kabul. They are faced with the Taliban. The Taliban says, you can defend here and we are strong enough in this area to kill you. And you can die in defense of your country, but the country's going to fall anyway. So use your head. And I think there was a lot of accommodation. And once momentum begins on something like that, you see a collapse. So I don't think people who are very familiar with Afghanistan were shocked that it could go so quickly. I think it went quicker than most of us thought it would, but I think many people thought it was gonna go relatively swiftly once the Afghan people were convinced that it was inevitable. One thing I'm curious about actually too is just how, you know, Afghanistan after 20 years, there were different biases. And one criticism that you make throughout the book is about the Bush administration's Iraq strategy, that it was riddled with similar biases regarding capabilities, regarding personal vendettas, uh, you name it. I'm curious what biases you kind of saw at play when you took the reins of the U.S. military mission in Afghanistan back in 2009 and how they impacted the mission and your conduct there. Sure. As well, in our outline in our book, Risk, a User's Guide, we talk about bias. And we tend, if you use the word bias to me in just normal conversation, typically I think you're saying I'm a racist or something. And that if I've got biases, I'm a bad person. The reality is we all have biases. And we just need to understand that is the lens through which we see things. And those biases reflect our experience, our upbringing, all the different things that go into us. So the most important thing you can do for biases is one, recognize and admit them. And second is use diversity, different perspectives to get into the conversation so that you can close as many of your blind spots as possible. I think in the case of Afghanistan, 
you have several biases at play. There's one bias on people who look and they say it's the graveyard of empires. No foreign force has ever lasted a long time in Afghanistan. Therefore, anyone who's not Afghan that comes to Afghanistan has a bad ending. And that's really, it's a historical-based opinion, but I would also argue it starts to be a bias because we start to see every instance through the same lens. Then there are other people who were biased that say, okay, we can do this, sort of a, a get it done. I would say when I first went to Afghanistan in 2002, and I was there as uh, the chief of staff of Joint Task Force 180, which was the senior military headquarters. Then I came back and I was there with counter-terrorist forces off and on for the next five years. And then I took command in 2009. When I came in in 2009, the biases that I detected were several. First was there was a sense that this is just too hard. And the multinational forces that were the coalition, to a great degree, were looking at it and saying, it's probably just not doable. There's inevitability that it will fail. I think the Afghan people at that point were starting to be convinced that war wouldn't work, that they'd been at war 20 years before the Americans and the other Western nations came, and that then they'd seen efforts to defeat the Taliban after that. And they hadn't seen the kind of improvements they wanted or they hoped for. So they were becoming biased that that effort was unlikely to succeed. And then there's the natural bias of people like military. If you give a military leader or an organization a task, they're going to try to get it done. And if you give them a task, they are going to try to convince themselves that they can do it because as soon as you convince yourself you can't do it, it's self-fulfilling. So there's an understanding that different people in different organizations come with sort of built-in biases. So I think what you've got to start with is deciding if you're going to do it. You've got to get people and then you've got to align on a strategy to execute that. I don't think we do that very well. I don't think we do that in businesses very well. I don't think we do that in other organizations very well. I think, don't think we do that in multinational efforts. We may pretend that we have, and we may even think we have, or we set a general objective, but below that, all the players define it differently. So they're not truly aligned on what they're trying to do. So even if they're working hard and they're good people with good intentions, they're not pulling in the same direction. And I would argue that that happened over and over in Afghanistan. And it was made harder by the fact that we rotated people there a lot. Very few Westerners learned the language. We didn't establish the uh, relationships. And many Afghans, to be honest, were, took a transactional view of it. They said, I'm going to try to get something out of this while I can. And sometimes that was corruption. Sometimes that was on the edge of corruption. But they were very much trying to grab what they could because they didn't think it was lasting. And so whenever you've got all those dynamics, it's hard to get a good long-term outcome. One thing I wanted to talk about is risk aversion and a sort of you describe in the book the U.S. military being a very risk averse entity just by and large. Given that we're dealing now with adversaries like Russia and China that seem to take more extreme risks in ramping up the pressure, whether it's in Ukraine or the air incursions that we're now seeing in Taiwan, how does the U.S. kind of find that sweet spot between showing potential adversaries they mean business and managing the loss of life, as well as respecting human rights, especially as we're turning away from wars in Afghanistan, the war on terror, and towards a more deterrent type of approach? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, individuals have a relationship with risk, as I describe it, and so do organizations. When I describe the U.S. military as being risk averse, people look at me and they go, wow, 
they're not cowards, they fight. I said, that's not what we're talking about. The U.S. military leadership believes it has a sacred responsibility to defend the nation, and they do not want to let the nation down. So if they think they need six aircraft carriers and 100 bombers, they want to buy 12 and 200 because they don't want to have much chance, much left to chance, that they could potentially fail the nation because the costs are so are great. And then military leaders are responsible for the people who work for them. So they have this very visceral sense that they have got to do everything they can to protect their people. So military units and leaders tend to become very risk averse to getting involved in the kind of operations they want to do. Now, you run that against some of the people we see around the world, as you mentioned, adversaries, but I would highlight the Israelis. Every once in a while, we see the Israelis do a commando strike or a Mossad action. And from the sideline, having been from that business, I can't help but being sort of with grudging admiration. Wow, that was really gutsy. Now, I'm not sure it was what I'd do, but it was really bold that they did that. And so this is where we hit that point. I think that there is a need for that sort of institutional caution that you don't rush out into war, you don't rush into maybe ill-thought-out endeavors. But at the same time, there are times when I think our individuals and our institutions become so risk-averse, and in some cases it's based on individuals who don't want to accept the personal responsibility for making a difficult decision that could go wrong. And so they find reasons to dodge it, or they find reasons to delay it, and we don't take some of the actions we should. The key thing is, I think you have to have systems that, and, and when I say systems, process is really what I mean, that bring in decisions with options you've got, get varied opinions on it, different perspectives, the diversity point, and flesh those out very carefully because that's the only way I think you prevent yourself from doing the things that are poorly planned and poorly executed. And then those things where we're so cautious that we don't act. And I bring up, you know, in the late 1990s, we had shots at Osama bin Laden. We had multiple opportunities to kill Osama bin Laden, and we made the decision not to. Now, in the moment, there's probably a rational reason for each case, but if we look at the sweep of things, we probably regret that. It just seems like the paradigm has really changed a lot with the ascent of China, with Russia continuing to be a competitor, and just the U.S. fighting in places where we don't necessarily have the information and communications advantage that the Pentagon has enjoyed for years and years. How do you assess the risk of going to those places and engaging in those operations, such as the ones we talked about, Taiwan and Ukraine earlier? Well, it's probably more of a playback to the Cold War era than it is what we've seen the last couple of decades, because really from about 1950 or 60 on, certain superpowers had a monopoly on technology like precision strike weapons, like surveillance capabilities, even air power. And so as a consequence, the United States exercised it most familiarly to us, but the Soviet Union had it and other, a few others did. Now the democratization of technology means, as you know from your time in Iraq, ISIS was able to use drones with explosive devices and fly them into rooms. A small commercially bought drone with a small hand grenade equivalent, you can fly it into a room where your opponent is and cause great damage. That's a precision strike weapon. And so the ability for people to buy night vision, to use cyber 
attacks is no longer limited to superpowers. And so what we've done is we've created a much more dangerous environment overall. And then in certain areas, like against China, where they have put a tremendous effort of building up their military capability with uh, hypersonic weapons, things like that, they are attempting to be a peer competitor, which limits many of the options we had before. We used to put the American fleet off the coast of China, and just that signal would say, hands off Taiwan, and we can punish mainland China if there is a, a war. And that's getting harder and harder. I'm not saying it's impossible by any means, but it's harder and harder. Even countries like North Korea with significant conventional artillery and nuclear weapons can send the message that we can destroy them, but the cost to us has gone up significantly. And so that changes the dynamic. You know, we went through 70 years where Americans never were bombed from the air. A number of things we just didn't have to worry about. And now we're in an era when all of that is possible by even mid-tier countries. An era where warfare is being even more personal. That's right. I think, in fact, warfare is also going to become heavily leaning toward information warfare. And so everyone in a degree is a target because if you think of what the Russians did in our elections, they were targeting our minds, they were targeting our attitudes, and they were targeting us. They weren't targeting things, they were targeting us, and they did, to a great degree, a, a pretty effective job at it. Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and Seek the truth with an open mind. Well, that's an interesting segue because you talk a lot in the book about the risk of disinformation, both state-backed and otherwise. And I wanted to ask you sort of not only what you see in the state-by-state -state thing, but also, you know, we've seen close colleagues of yours, your former intelligence chief and the former Trump national security advisor, Michael Flynn, become a purveyor of disinformation on social media. I'm curious what challenges disinformation presents to American leaders and, and some of the most senior officials making these decisions, perhaps on faulty intelligence. Jack, I think in the near term, it may be the most uh, dangerous threat we face. And I categorize misinformation as unintentionally incorrect information and disinformation as intentionally corrupt information. Either way, it can have a huge effect in misinforming populations who then act based upon that misinformation. The problem is that information technology has gotten ahead of our maturity as populations. We can communicate faster than we can think, and we typically do. We can get out and we can tweet different things on social media, and we can put out things that are completely incorrect. And because it is so inexpensive to do that, you or I or just anybody else has this extraordinary reach. And then, of course, that's amplified by things like bots and other, you know, more organized efforts to create echo chambers on that. And so we all think that we are too clever to be affected by that. But the reality is we are all being affected by that one way or another. There are parts of our population 
who are less informed, who have been more affected by that, and we see some pretty extreme people espousing some pretty ill-informed things, but all of us are touched by it in some way. And so I think it's a thing that we've got to understand. This is incredibly dangerous, and yet we run into things like our First Amendment rights, which we consider sacred and all, and we've got to figure out, we're not going to put the genie back in the bottle, but how we deal with that. And I think there are going to have to be norms put in our society, particularly into our politics, in which people are held to account for deliberate disinformation. If you stand up and yell fire in a crowded theater and there's no fire, I think you ought to be held to account. And we haven't quite figured out how to do that, but I think we need to get there because right now there are way too many people feel that they can do that with impunity. And is that something you saw with January 6th? I mean, the protesters going to the Capitol in the Trump-inspired riot, inspired by disinformation. Yeah, I think I saw that. Now, that's my opinion. And that's one person's opinion. Now, I, I watch certain media, listen to certain things, drew certain conclusions. I think what we ought to be frightened about in that January 6th event is start with the assumption that these are people who consider themselves good Americans, who consider themselves patriots, who consider themselves thoughtful people. And they went to the Capitol believing that this was a good and right thing to do. Now, I disagree with that. I think it was a wrong thing to do and they were basing it on wrong information. But I don't believe that they thought that, which just shows the power of this. Because if you multiply that many times, you can have huge things happen by people who are otherwise good people. Look at Nazi Germany under Adolf Hitler. He was still popular the day he committed suicide in 1945. 12 years after he'd taken over and started wrecking Nazi Germany, and yet he still was relatively popular. So the power of this, you know, we say can't happen here. I disagree. Could happen here, and we have to be extraordinarily vigilant about it. Well, taking it back to the 30,000-foot level, you know, what do you see in, in this information climate and also in sort of a great power competition climate with China, the risk of communication that could spark conflict or lead to a massive war? Well, that's right, because if you think of a scenario where somebody came up with a, an incorrect story, disinformation, and you pumped it out into a population, you could probably whip that population up into a pretty emotional frenzy in a pretty short period of time if it was a slightly credible story, even if it was completely wrong. By the time that story could be corrected with corroboration you know, from other sources and it could be gotten out to people, you could have huge actions take place. Now, if that happened to leaders, you know, if you get to leaders and you convince them that certain things have happened, and of course, we're in the age of technology where you can falsify films and things like that, you could create a wag the dog scenario where you could get very dangerous action on something that was absolutely untrue. But once you start your action, now reaction is to your action. So the war could start for a specious reason, but once the war starts, it's like a forest fire. It burns on the fuel that's there. Well, I have one more question, and then we'll turn it over to the listeners to see what they have to ask. But one thing I was curious about is your book is really about controlling risk at the systemic level. You have some personal examples, but we talk a lot about the systemic. Many people in our audience might not be CEOs or four-star generals. So how does a regular person apply the lessons in your book to their everyday life? Yeah, first think about it this way. The greatest risk to us is us. 
We spend a lot of time worried about threats, meters are coming, something around the corner, et cetera, external things that we really don't predict very well and we can't avoid. They're gonna come. So stop fixating on them and start controlling what you can control. The vulnerability of you and the organization you're a part of. If we think of the human immune system, it fights off what's estimated to be 10,000 microorganisms a day, any one of which could make us sick or kill us. And it detects those, it assesses each one, whether it's dangerous or not, it responds by destroying the ones that are, and then it learns in the process. That's what vaccine does. Our organizations, and even we as individuals, have the equivalent. We have a risk immune system, and it's made up of communication, narrative, diversity, bias, action, 10 factors that all work together to determine whether we're resilient. And so it doesn't matter what threat comes, our ability to respond is based upon the health of that system. You know, I would argue that COVID-19, which has just absolutely rocked America painfully and tragically, really wasn't as big a threat as we've allowed it to be. It was completely predictable. We had the knowledge, public health experience, what to do, and we got a scientific miracle with vaccines in record time, and we dropped the ball because our internal systems, our risk immune system, just wasn't up to the task. Our communications failed, our narrative was off, our leadership stumbled, a number of factors. So that's the way we need to think about it. And what that means is we're not victims. We have control. We have the opportunity to make ourselves incredibly stronger. We just have to take it. Wonderful. Well, um, Stan, it's been great to get your thoughts. Now I want to turn it over to some of our listeners. And we have several questions here about your opinion on the level of corruption in the Afghan government and what impact that really had on what we saw transpire on August 16th and in the days ahead. Curious if you could weigh in on that. Yeah, the level of corruption in Afghanistan across the society is very disappointing. For example, if you went to a district governor, think a county in America, about 366 districts, a county governor made $150 a month when I was there in 2009. That wasn't nearly enough to run his office. If you visited a district governor right by uh, social norms, had to serve you tea and raisins and things like that, and they didn't get any funding for that. So it was built on the idea that they were going to get a certain amount of local corruption. Once you build corruption into the way a system works, then what happens is you get a job from your boss by paying your boss for that job. In response, what that boss does is it's an unholy agreement that they will protect you from prosecution. Then it goes up the chain. So it's like this tentacles that go through a system that corrupt every part of it. It goes all the way up to the top. And several things happen. One, people don't trust the courts. They don't trust the leaders because they just assume corruption. And the legitimacy of the government starts to be just eroded away. Now, Afghanistan's had this problem for a long time. But to try to get away from it, both the Karzai and Ghani administrations just couldn't get over the hump where they could get rid of enough corruption and build the legitimacy of their government at the same time. And so people just didn't have enough faith in them. Well, Stan, what were your personal relationships like with Karzai and some of those other Afghan officials? And, and what did you tell them at, at the time about the corruption and, and the tentacles that you saw really expanding through Afghan society on that level? 
Yeah, it's a tough one. I had some very direct conversations uh, with President Karzai, and he wasn't president then, but with Ashraf Ghani. And, you know, I said, hey, you undercut your credibility in your own country. I'm not the expert on Afghanistan. I will tell you, you're undercutting your credibility with the Western community upon whom you rely for funding and whatnot. And one time, Hamid Karzai looked at me and he said, Stan, have you seen the black, big, suburban kind of vehicles driving around Kabul carrying contractors to and from the Serena Hotel and into the places they were working and they're making good money and they're staying in the hotel. And he goes, that's all aid money that is being spent to help Afghanistan. Doesn't that feel like corruption to you? And, you know, to a degree, I could take his point because people all take advantage of a system, particularly where there's a lot of money sloshing through a system, a place like Afghanistan, we came in and poured money. And I won't say we did it irresponsibly with intent, but I think we did it irresponsibly by pouring money in because we wanted to do things quickly. And what that did is it created opportunities for clever operator kind of people. So, you know, they would be defensive about it. They never denied that there was corruption, but they would be defensive and try to explain to me, well, that's the way things work. And then they would sort of carefully imply, you guys, meaning you, the Western countries, aren't as much better as you pretend you are. One thing I wanted to ask and came from our audience as well is sort of you outline in the book a rubric, basically, to assess risk. And I'm just curious how you developed that and how you began to incorporate it throughout your career in your assessments of risks and, and major decisions you had to make. Whenever you've got an activity, I think the first thing to do is define the activity, you know, the objective of whatever your mission is. And then as you're looking at risks, I found it best to get varied people in the room. And they say, what are the things that could cause us problems here? What could go wrong? And what would be the cost of those things that go wrong? If you get just one or two people from one part of the organization, they're going to have a very limited view because that's the nature of the beast. The problem here is you can't get, my old boss used to say, don't get treed by chihuahuas. Um, you can list so many risks after a while that you start to be terrified of everything. And so you've got to say, well, what consequences are such that we can survive those consequences? And you can sort of put them in one places. And then those things that we can't survive, you know, if they go, we, it's an existential threat to the organization of the mission. And we've either got to mitigate those or we've got to modify the mission. That was retired four-star General Stanley McChrystal speaking with foreign policy's Jack Detch about McChrystal's new book, Risk, A User's Guide, co-written with Anna Patrico. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. 
Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>